Well, morning. Morning, morning Redeemer. Well, whenever I, uh, last few times I've prepared a sermon, I've, I always think, oh, it'd be great if I got a full crowd, got a full church, you know, and then, then I show up and I'm like, oh, no one shows up. <laughs> so, we're, we're doing okay. But, um, yeah, you guys are here. Thank you. The true and faithful, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, Eric read, so I'm preaching on Psalm 11, and Eric read it. Um, so I don't need to read again. I will jump right into it. Um, but the first, the first question I want to answer is, why Psalm 11? It seems kind of random. Um, well, the first three sermons uh, I did were in the New Testament, um, so I wanted to try something from the Old Testament. And uh, a psalm seemed like an easier and less threatening way, uh, less threatening option for my first foray into the Old Testament. Um, and while I was looking through the psalms, um, and I was looking at, li- at different themes in the psalms, I found there's, there's a, a lot of psalms on praise, a lot of psalms on lament, but there was one thing that stuck out to me for whatever reason was the theme of trusting God, and there weren't very many under that category for, what, uh, um, for whatever reason. Um, psalm 11 is one of the shorter ones under that category, and once I read through it a few times, I decided it was the one I wanted to do. Um, interestingly, it may have—I uh, found it may have been one of the first psalms that David ever wrote, uh, making one of the first psalms ever written. Um, it's short, but I found there's a lot of uh, instruction, a lot there that can be unpacked, and I think it has plenty of good instruction that is applicable to us today. So my prayer is that as we study and meditate on the psalm, it will give us deeper trust and confidence in God. Um, let me pray real quick. Um, before I really, really get going, Father God, help help us this morning. Hear your word. Um, help me to preach it well, and pray you'd be glorified um, through it. Um, help me handle your word correctly, and um, hear. Pray we would hear what, what you have for us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so first, I'd like to step us through this, the first part of the psalm, and I'll set it up for you um, to help understand what's going on. So this psalm, like many others, was written by David, who was, who was a king of Israel. He was the second king to rule over Israel after the first king, Saul, was removed from his kingship. Now, we don't know for sure when it was written or what exactly was happening in David's life while he was writing it. Some of David's other psalms do mention what was happening in his life that spurred him on to write the particular psalm, but, but not Psalm 11. But from the words of the psalm itself, we can make some decent guesses of when it might have been written and what was happening in David's life at the time. Many commentators believe it could have been written when, uh, when Saul was still on the throne and David was in Saul's service, around the time that Saul began, began to be jealous of David and began threatening him. But I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, David begins this, this psalm with what you might call his, his thesis statement, showing where he has planted his flag, if you will, where he, he has taken his stand. In the Lord I take refuge. Of all the people or places where David could take refuge, he has decided to put his trust in the Lord to seek safety and protection in God. But of course, this suggests that David was seeking protection from, seeking refuge from something. And we read on to find out what that is. Now, Psalm 11 reads a little bit like a conversation or, or debate between two people. Um, once David has stated his position that his refuge is found in the Lord, he asks a question that reveals what the other person was saying. David asks, how can you say to my soul? We get the sense that there's some incredulity in David's tone, even offense, like when someone says, how could you say that to me? 
even before we know what it is the other person said to David, we can tell that he has some issues with it. Now, it's interesting that David uses the word soul. How can you say to my soul? Not just how can you say to me? This suggests that whatever the person said struck a deep chord with David. One commentator said it well when he said, David seems to have felt the force of the advice, for it came home to his soul. But what did the other person say to David? They said this, starting in the second half of verse 1, Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, at this point, we should, we should remember that the Psalms are primarily poetry. They tend to use a lot of metaphorical language. The other person is advising David to flee, to, to run away from some threat. Using metaphor, David should flee from this threat like a bird to his mountain. Now, the imagery of a bird is likely used because a bird is, is capable of quickly flying up and away from, from dangers on the ground. And a mountain can be a place of refuge that, that birds can, you know, can fly up to and hide in the trees or in some cave in the mountain. Well, what is going on in David's life that he should flee and seek refuge? As we see in verses 2 and 3, it's because the wicked are on the attack. The wicked have their weapons out and at the ready. They have their bow in hand, bent, and with an arrow fitted to the string. They are ready to shoot, and they intend to shoot secretly under the cover of darkness at the upright in heart. If David indeed wrote this while he was in Saul's service, around the time Saul became antagonistic toward David, then Saul and his men would be the wicked men portrayed here. And this would make sense since there are, there are several uh, other psalms that David wrote where he essentially prayed to God against some of Saul's men. For example, Psalm 59, which may have been written right around the same time as Psalm 11, and was written, quote, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Now, we don't know for sure who the you is in verse 1. How can you say to my soul, this person who is talking with David? My guess is that perhaps, perhaps it was his wife and Saul's daughter, Michael. In 1 Samuel 19, we can read, about the time I just mentioned, when Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. In that passage, after Saul sent men to watch David's house, um, David's wife, Michael, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be, you will be killed. We can see that she's trying to convince David to flee from a threat, just like Saul 11. Now, another possibility is that the you in Psalm 11 is Jonathan, David's friend and Saul's son. In 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan helps David flee the city after further threatenings from King Saul. Yet another possibility I thought of is that David is debating with himself in Psalm 11, and the you in verse 1 is David's own thoughts. Now, whoever the other person is, they continue in verse 3, continue in verse 3 to say, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Again, the psalm is being highly, highly poetic. The word foundations is likely not referring to physical foundations, or uh, like the foundation of a building or anything like that. There, there seems to be consensus among the commentators that the foundations refer to moral, law, uh, moral order and law, and even refers to the princes and nobles of the land who are the defenders of, of moral order and law. So they are saying that the foundations of moral order and those who are to defend that moral order are being destroyed. And King Saul's madness of trying to kill innocent David and Saul's right-hand men joining in 
would certainly be a case of crumbling moral foundations. So to paraphrase, the other person's argument to David in Psalm 11, verses 1 to 3, uh, they are telling David that he's under attack from wicked men. The moral foundations and those who are supposed to uphold those are eroding away. Therefore, David's only choice is to run away to a place of safety, a place that he can reach by his own power. Flee like a bird to your mountain. And there is no mention of God in their argument. This person's argument to David comes from a heart of utter unbelief. It's a statement of complete lack of faith in God and thorough lack of hope. In their argument to David, there is only talk of what the wicked are doing, nothing about what God is doing. David's only choice, apparently, is to hide himself in a place of worldly refuge, somewhere he knows of and needs no supernatural assistance to get to. And they argue, if the moral foundations are destroyed, there is nothing the righteous can do. All will be lost. End of story. Now, this other person is not making an illogical argument. If, if there is no God and the wicked are on the attack, then what they are saying makes sense. David should run to the hills for protection. They're also assuming that the foundations, the pillars of society, such as the king and his nobles, are the only defenders of righteousness. But we'll see in a minute why the other person's argument fails and why David doesn't buy it. But are we sometimes tempted to this kind of thing as well? What are some of the ways that we seek worldly refuge? In 2020, if Bernie Sanders got elected, how many of us would start thinking about ways to leave the country? And doesn't it seem that the wicked are pretty much running free in our society these days? Abortion on demand, 60 million murdered babies and rising the LGBTQ agenda being pushed further and further, our cultural elites advocating to let men use women's restrooms, letting children get sex changes, child traffickers and sex traffickers, an epidemic of fatherlessness, homelessness, and drug abuse. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? How much temptation, then, is in there in, in our circles to insulate ourselves from that wicked, that wicked world out there seeking refuge in our own Christian ghetto where everything is safe for us and our kids. Now, having said that, I need to balance this with wisdom because there are times when fleeing from immediate danger is wise. There were many Jewish people during World War II who lived in Germany and countries neighboring Germany who wished they had gotten out before it's too late. And there are things out in the world that we should be protecting ourselves and our kids from. The thing is, David did, in fact, flee from Saul physically. Saul's behavior toward David became to a point where it was best for David to just get out. The important point, though, is that David did not abandon his trust in God as his ultimate refuge. There are numerous psalms of David where he records his times of distress, including this time in his life when he fled from Saul in hidden caves. And in all of them, he is looking to God to be his refuge and his fortress. He is praying to and seeking God and he maintains his trust in God's providence in spite of his difficult circumstances. Excuse me. So why did David resist this particular argument to flee, the one we see in Psalm 11, if he indeed, indeed flee? Well, there's some additional detail to this story. Before David came to serve in Saul's court, when Saul became jealous of David and started threatening, Saul had, uh, God had already removed his favor from Saul. And David had already been anointed as the new king by the prophet Samuel. It just hadn't taken full full effect. I think it's possible that the other person David is arguing with in Psalm 11 
isn't just telling David to flee temporarily for physical protection. They may have been telling David to abandon his trust in God's purposes for his life permanently. Now, I have a quote I want to read to you, but uh, bear with me. It's a little heady and wordy. Um, I'll try to explain it after I read it. Um, one, one of the commentators said, All these suggestions, suggestions to flee, may well represent the voice of our own fears, the whispers of sense and sloth, which ever dwell on and exaggerate the perils in the road of duty, and bid us abandon resistance to prevailing evils as useless, and betake ourselves to the repose and security of some tempting nest far away from strife. But such counsels are always base, and though they be the result of prudence, are short-sighted and leave out precisely the determining factor in the calculation. Whew. So he's saying that these, all these kind of suggestions to, to run away from the wicked, to flee, um, these, these arguments we hear of this other person making to David, where they're pointing out um, all, what the wicked are doing and by advising him to run, um, they may also represent our own fears. And these fears tend to exaggerate the dangers we see on our road of duty to obey God. And these fears tempt us to quit our struggle against evil because it appears it's a useless fight. And instead, we should just go hide ourselves in a safe place far away from trouble. But these suggestions are lowly and contemptible. And though they seem like the right thing, they are, they are short-sighted and they leave, out, they leave out the one key consideration. And what is that key consideration, that determining factor? The Lord is on his heavenly throne. At the beginning of the psalm, David made the statement, In the Lord I take refuge. Now, in his counter-argument to the person he's talking with, he begins with in verse 4 with, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. He was responding to the other person's unbelieving and hopeless plea by saying, Hey, I, I hear you making all this commotion about what the wicked are doing out there and how terrible it all is. But let's get our priorities straight here. There is a God in heaven, and he is seated on his throne up there as king over all creation. This is the determining factor. David doesn't refute the other person's logic. Rather, he seeks to correct their faulty presupposition, their assumption, which seems to be that there is no God, or that if God is there, he isn't doing anything. More than that, David is casting a vision in our minds of the glorious Lord God, not just dwelling up in heaven, but also reigning as a king seated on the throne above all creation. Commentator Alex McLaren said of this verse, To the eyes that have seen that vision, and before which it ever burns, all earthly sorrows and dangers seem small. There is the true asylum of the hunted soul. That is the mountain to which it is wise to flee. Now David continues on with, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Now he's starting to talk about what God is doing. God is not just sitting up there on his throne, kicking back with his feet up watching TV, you know, letting wicked men run rampant on the earth. No, the Lord is looking at mankind. His eyes see what is happening. In fact, his eyelids are testing mankind. When you're looking closely at something and really focusing on it, you tend to squint your eyelids to help you see better to block out the extraneous things from your view. That seems to be, to be the intent of David's reference to God's eyelids testing the children of man. God sees what all men are doing, 
the righteous and the wicked, and he focuses very intently on them and tests and weighs their actions. Now, everything that David himself says in the psalm, the first part of verse 1 as, as well as verses 4 to 7, are all about God. Where David quotes the other person's statements in the second half of verse 1 through verse 3, nothing they say mentions anything about God. But David, what David is making his arguments, it's all about God. David isn't in denial about what the wicked are doing, but that's not where his focus is. His focus is on the one who is greater and more powerful than all the wicked, the one who sits above and rules all things. In other words, David is saying that the Lord is sovereign. This means that he has supreme power and authority. The other person is fretting about the, what, what the wicked are doing and what's happening as a result. But David's first response is to point out that the wicked are not the ones who are ultimately in control here. There's someone higher, someone more powerful than these wicked men, someone who's actually in control, and the someone sees and knows what is going on. Drink water. Jesus told a parable once in Matthew 24, 45 to 51, um, where a master of a household put one of his servants in charge of the household and left he left on a journey. But the servant was wicked and said to himself, My master is delayed. And he began to beat his fellow servants, and he ate and drank with drunkards. But the master came back on a day the wicked servant was not expecting. And Jesus says the master cut that wicked servant in pieces and put him with the hypocrites where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know exactly what that means, but that doesn't sound good. This is similar to what David is saying, where the other person is worried about what about the wicked and telling David that he needs to flee, David is responding back, don't forget about the master. The wicked are not the ones who are really in charge. The master is. Or to quote the title of a book by Christian author Francis Schaeffer, he is there and he is not silent. I like that title. Now, how can we cultivate the same perspective when we're faced with difficulties? First, we need to be putting God at the forefront of our minds and in our hearts on a daily basis. The more you do that before the big crisis comes, the better prepared you will be handle will be to handle it spiritually, mentally, and emotionally when it does come. We should be daily reading his word and spending time in prayer, both individually and as families, and, of course, coming here every Sunday. <laughs> Unless you're deathly ill. <laughs> now, if I can get super practical with you guys for a moment... If, if you have a smartphone, and most of us adults probably do, there are free Bible apps, free Bible reading plans that you can use to help remind you to read and to track your reading. For example, I'm on a plan now to read through the Bible in a year. Um, I'm almost done. Um, and I use uh, I use the ESV Bible app, which um, has an audio feature that can actually read it to you. Um, so I listen to the assigned chapters for the day on, uh, on my commute to work. In, conju in conjunction with that, I use an app called Reading Plan, which tells me which chapters to read for the day. And once I've done them, it has checkboxes uh, for me to check them off, and it shows shows me my progress. Um, the app has tons of various reading plans that you can choose, including the, the Christ Church Bible Cha Reading Challenge that some of you are uh, familiar with. Um, and there's just tons of apps. Um, to read through the Bible in a year, you have to read about four chapters a day, maybe a little less, um, and that takes about 15, 20 minutes a day. Um, but there are tons of other plans if you don't have time to read um, that much a day. But basically what I'm saying is none of us really have a good excuse for not getting some Bible in every day. Um, but in addition to reading, praying, and church attendance, 
The second way to cultivate David's same perspective is that when the crisis does come, we, again, we keep God in the forefront of our minds. This is the same answer. But this is easier to do if you've been working on it on a daily basis beforehand, um, as I was just talking about. And when the difficult trial does come, we need to remember that God is sovereign and in control of the situation. Amos 3.6 says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God has a purpose for everything he does. The trial that is happening to you is not just some random, uncontrolled chaos brought on by a cold, uncaring universe. As we'll see in our passage in just a minute, verse 5 says that the Lord tests the righteous. According to the International Standard Bible, Bible Encyclopedia, the word testing, as used in the Bible, is often compared to the refining of precious metals. The righteous may suffer or face affliction during these periods, but such trials result in refinement or restoration. And Psalm 66, 10 to 12 says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. You went through fire and through water. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. But if God tests the righteous in this way, what of the wicked? This brings me to my next point, which is the Lord punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. A little more water. Verse 5, David says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, one might wonder why he, why he says the Lord tests the righteous, but he doesn't say the Lord tests the wicked. And actually, as we saw in verse 4, David does say that the Lord tests the children of man, indicating that he tests both the righteous and the wicked. And in the second half of verse 5, we're already starting to see the results of God's testing of the wicked. His soul hates the wicked, who hates the wicked, and the one who loves violence. It seems that from God's testing of mankind, he's going to deal with the wicked first. And this is what we find in verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. From verses 4 and 5, where God tested the wicked and found them to be wicked, unrighteous, rebellious, attackers of the good, and God therefore hates them, verse 6 is the punishment that comes from this verdict. Now, the, the ESV, the version I'm using, says, let him rain coals, etc. Uh, this seems to imply that David is praying this, that he's, at, he's asking God to send this judgment on the wicked. Uh, pretty much all the other versions I looked at, though, uh, says that God shall or God will rain coals on the wicked. In other words, God's planning to do it, regardless if David prays for it or not. And the second half of the verse says um, that fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. So regardless if David is praying for it or stating it as fact, the punishment of the wicked by God is part of David's argument for why he seeks his refuge in the Lord alone as his best place of protection from the wicked. He's seeking comfort in that fact. Now, the, the imagery of fiery coals and burning sulfur should remind us of another time God judged wicked people with these things, namely the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Starting in verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of those cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. 
And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and, be, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. But when we read in the Bible about David's life, there was never a time when God did this specifically to any of David's enemies. So again, David is likely using, speaking poetically here, using imagery that every Israelite would have been familiar with to describe the severity and totality of God's judgment of the wicked. And pretty much all of the wicked men in David's life did receive judgment from God. Goliath, the Philistine giant who defied the armies of the living God, was taken out by David himself. King Saul, who was bitterly jealous of, of David and tried to kill him on multiple occasions, was rejected by God and later fell on his own sword during a battle. And David's own son, Absalom, who rebelled against his father and, and staged a coup against him, later died in battle. Now, when you spend some time with this psalm, you notice that there are several things that are juxtaposed against each other within, within this short psalm. For example, the mention of David's soul being troubled in verse 1, by the other person's advice to flee versus God's soul hating the wicked in verse 5. The wicked hiding in the dark in verse 2 versus God seeing all in verse 4. The wicked shooting arrows up at the upright in heart in verse 2 versus God raining coals down on them in verse 6. And God's hatred of the wicked in verse 5 versus his love for righteous deeds in verse 7. And as I was studying that, it reminded me of the phrase, bringing a knife to a gunfight. You've heard that phrase? Well, in Psalm 11, it's a case of the wicked bringing bows and arrows to a napalm fight. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> now, in verse 7, David gives the reason why God can judge the wicked like this. And it's because the Lord is righteous. The wicked rebel against the Lord. They defy him, break his laws, attack his people, and commit ungodly sins. God, in his righteousness, carries out justice against them and is right for, and good for him to do so. Now, what of the wicked in our day? The abortionists, drug dealers, and sex traffickers, and child abusers? All those who rebel against and shake their fist at God? Charles Spurgeon's commentary on this verse says, If God hates them, I will not fear them. Think of their end, their fearful end, and all fear of them must be changed in, into contempt of their threatenings, and pity for their miserable, miserable estate. Now that we've seen uh, the result of God's testing of the wicked, what about the righteous ones that David mentioned, the ones in the, uh, the ones of the Lord tests? In verse seven, we see the verdict from this testing of the righteous, and what the righteous receive as a result. Quote: For the Lord is righteous; He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold His face. Uh, the King James Version says that his countenance doth behold the upright. So he sees their face. Regardless of how one translate it, there, there's a definite sense that the righteous will see God face to face, and they will be at peace with him because the Lord is righteous himself and loves righteous deeds. But this is quite the statement, because we know that sinful man on his own is not able to stand in the presence of God without getting completely obliterated by his radiant glory and righteousness. The original readers of the psalm would have uh, been amazed at this statement because they would have likely recalled the story of Moses, who one time asked to see God's glory. And God replied, quote, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy 
on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see me see my back. But my face shall not be seen. And that's from Exodus 33. How amazing, then, is this statement in Psalm 11, verse 7, which says that the upright will see the face of God. But how is this possible? Of all the people who had lived up to the time that David wrote this psalm, Moses was the one guy who had been brought closest to God. Moses was the one who went up on the holy mountain of God and received the law from him. When he would come down from the mountain, his face would be glowing, and he had to put a veil over it in order to talk with the people. And when he asked if he could see God's face, the answer was that even, even Moses could not see God's face and live. So here we have some more truth that we can take a hold of during times when we are being troubled by the actions of wicked men. As Spurgeon said, we don't need to, to fear the wicked because we know in the end they will be the ones in fear. And the righteous will receive a reward in the end that is beyond anything that men like Abraham, Moses, and even David received during their lifetimes. However, there's another consideration we need to make. All throughout the Psalms, as well as Proverbs, there is a lot of comparing and contrasting of the righteous and the wicked. Both of those books use these words a lot. But when when we read these passages, do we always assume that when they're talking about the righteous, that they're talking about us? And those people out there in the world are the wicked ones? We are the ones with the white hats and they're the ones with the black hats? All those nasty people out there? Um, is this a correct assessment? Romans 3.10, 10 which is mostly quotes from Psalms, by the way, says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their their paths are ruined in misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So if there are none who are righteous, doesn't that mean we all are considered wicked, and therefore we all deserve the punishments described in Psalm 11? Why then does David say that the righteous will be rewarded by seeing God's face if there are none righteous? Well, of course, there was one who was truly righteous, the man, Jesus Christ. In Acts 3.14, Peter is addressing a crowd of Jews and preaching to them about Jesus. And he says, you denied the righteous, the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. First John 2.1 says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The astonishing thing is that Jesus takes Psalm 11, where the wicked are punished and the righteous see God's face, and flips it completely around. He's the only truly righteous one to have lived. He's the only one over in the righteous category, yet he took on himself and received the punishment that the wicked deserve. He took the fiery coals and sulfur of his father's wrath, and he did this so that the wicked, that's us, could be made righteous. First, uh, Second Corinthians five twenty one says, "For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when we read in the Psalms and Proverbs talking about the righteous, this and only this is how we can see it as talking about us. It's because of Jesus in us. Since we therefore are counted as wicked without Jesus and we deserve the coals, the fire, sulfur, and scorching wind in Psalm 11.6, Jesus then becomes to us the true refuge we need. We need refuge from the righteous wrath of God because of our own wickedness more than we need refuge from those other wicked people out there in the world. In one of his books, John Piper said, There is no other refuge than Jesus today. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 The Father bruised the Son so that sinners could take refuge in the awesome name and that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. But we can't just have vague notions about Jesus and maybe and believe maybe he existed and appreciate his teachings. We have to receive Jesus. We have to believe in him, put our trust in him, and obey him in order for him to be our refuge from the judgment we deserve. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. David proclaimed, In the Lord I take refuge. He was seeking refuge from the wicked. May we do the same by taking refuge in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we take refuge from him, from all the evil happening in our world. More importantly, we seek refuge from our own wicked hearts and from the wrath we deserve because of them. Jesus said in Mark seven twenty-one and 23, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. But Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Amen. Let me pray as, I, as we close up. Father God, thank you so much for this morning and um, the sermon. Pray you would use it, Lord. Um, to work in our hearts, um, that we trust you and you Lord, uh, more, Lord, for um, refuge um, from wicked um, people, including most especially our own hearts. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for for your sacrifice on the cross, Lord, to forgive us of our of our wickedness. In Jesus' name, Amen.